0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, also known as COVID-19, is a novel virus with a rapidly changing genotype. It's been responsible for over a million deaths so far. One of every 303 Americans have died as a result of this virus and infection with covid 19. And it's been responsible for a reduction in life expectancy in the US for both 2021 and 2022. There are four widely available approved vaccines in the US, yet an inadequate number of individuals have been immunized and very few people are still wearing protective masks. The consequences of this, continued excess morbidity and mortality, as well as the development of multiple new variants of the virus. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Greg Poland, an internist and director of vaccine research at the Mayo Clinic. He's also the lead author of an article just published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings in December of 2022. The article is entitled Year Three of COVID 19 Harsh Truths, Brutal Realities and Glimmers of Hope. And we'll be discussing some of the key points in this article. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Greg, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. You bet, Daryl. Good to be with you. Well, this virus, most of what we have learned has been kind of on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis. We've now got about three years into it, have we got a good understanding of this virus or disease, or is there still a great deal that we don't know? I think the latter is the truth,
1: uh, Daryl. There's a lot we don't know yet. A lot we do know. I mean, think about it. In 2019, prior to all of this starting, the canvas that we call SARS-CoV-2 was blank. And we've put a lot of pixels up on that canvas in the last three years. But And enough for us to kind of get a picture of it, but a lot to know. I mean, you think about it, uh, we've been giving influenza vaccines for over 70 years, and as you and I speak, yet newer clinical trials for universal flu vaccines are being developed. So this is going to be with us a long time. As I tell people, get used to it. Your great, great, great grandchildren will be getting COVID vaccines.
0: Yeah, this virus is is not going away. Well, you, your article is fascinating. I really enjoyed reading it. And in that article, you discuss the harsh truths of COVID-19. Mm. Share those with our audience. What are the harsh truths?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the harsh truths and the brutal realities revolve around the idea that, and actually the numbers have gotten a little bit worse from what you read in the opener. We're now at about one out of every 297 Americans who was alive and would still normally be alive are now dead of COVID. Well over a million Americans dead of a virus. And so we not only see that number of deaths, we've had an insane number of hospitalizations in this country, an insane amount of money spent on medical care. So many people harmed by this virus, long COVID occurring in an estimated 20 plus percent of people who get infected. And here's the worst part the consequence of our behavior has been that this virus has not been eliminated, has continued to mutate and become, if you will, a worse and worse virus in terms of transmissibility. And now, We are at a point, and and again, sort of one of the harsh truths is that we do not have a monoclonal antibody anymore to effectively treat people who get infected and hospitalized. It is outmaneuvered all of the monoclonal antibodies that we have. So we're down to three antivirals. And I'll tell you, Daryl, we're holding our breath, hoping against hope that this virus does not learn how to evade the antivirals because then we'll have nothing.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how we've done as a country in terms of receiving the recommended immunizations. How do we compare to others? I think we did fairly well with the initial two-dose
1: primary series. The bodies stacking up in New York and around the world, I think made an impression on people. They realized this was a serious disease. And for the most part, they complied with getting the vaccine. Boosters, that has not happened. For example, the bivalent newer booster, something around 12% of eligible Americans have taken it. I mean, unfathomably low. Where I think we've really failed is in mask wearing, in other, what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions like hand washing and social distancing. And as a result, and these are published data, when you look at the 21 high-income countries, most like ours, we're dead last in terms of immunization uptake. We're first in the number of deaths and the number of hospitalizations that have occurred. So in that respect, we've done rather poorly. I think a way to put it is that there would be hundreds of thousands of Americans who would still be with us celebrating Christmas who are not now with us. Yeah.
0: Well, that probably gets into this next question about the human factors that have had an impact on managing this pandemic. Talk to Mm. us about the human factors.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting one, Daryl. My daughter is a mental health and trauma specialist, and she and I published a paper late this summer on that very issue. You know, I've been a part of many national and international tabletop exercises designed to get us ready for something like this. And I, I will say that the aspect never well planned for has been human behavior which many people would say inherently unknowable.
0: Well, this virus has given us a variety of variants over these last several years. Can you kind of review the different variants that we've now seen? Probably don't have enough time for all of those. And I say that as a way of illustrating how many there
1: are. But, you know, in, in the U.S., there was the original Wuhan strain, then the Washington strain, the alpha strain. We really didn't see much beta. We had delta We didn't really see much gamma. And then out of nowhere, Daryl, and this is one of the two primary things I predicted wrongly. We thought we would see variants off of Delta and we really didn't. And I will say in my own defense, not one of us nationally or internationally saw this coming. Seemingly out of nowhere came Omicron. And what we've really seen now since December of last year, is a series of Omicron subvariants. So we're dealing with not only BA1, 2, 4, and 5, but now subvariants of that, where we've got BQ, BQ BQ1.1, XBB, XBB1, BF7, BN, and there'll be more of them. And the key part about those is they're more transmissible not more virulent, but more transmissible. And they demonstrate either in full or in part, tremendous immune evasion. What that means, and this is what the public often gets wrong. I don't care if they've had three episodes of COVID and survived it and not had any problem. They're unlikely to be as lucky with these variants that we have now and that are coming up. They will evade the immunity you developed from previous infection, from previous immunization, or from previous
0: immunization and infection.
1: That's how infectious and immune evasive these are.
0: You know, Greg, it seems like we've seen an increase in transmissibility, but a decrease in virulence of these new variants. Is is that accurate?
1: Well, I, I would say the decrease in virulence has maybe a little bit to do with the properties of the virus, but more to do that the general level of immunity in the country is reasonably high. So you don't see people getting hospitalized or dying unless they're highly immunocompromised or they're unvaccinated or under vaccinated. In terms of transmissibility, it is much, much higher. Let me just give you an illustration out of the paper that I wrote. If we thought about a virus that had an R-naught of 2.5, and that R-naught means if you got infected, how many people on average do you go on to infect? That's what that number 2.5 means. And you take it in a population and you take it through 10 cycles of transmission, you get about 9,500 infections. Now take that same virus and make it more transmissible. So you don't spread it to two and a half people, you spread it to six people. Now these current variants are even more transmissible than that. And instead of 9,500 new infections, you get 60 million Mm -hmm. new infections. And that's a feature called exponentiality and that's why we're seeing despite 3 years of covid and vaccines and people having gotten infected previously that's why we see our hospitals full not only of covid but rsv and influenza and now group a strep people don't have the immunity they think they do against these immune evasive strains so the transmissibility piece is really key here and and i think it's a hard concept to get across to the
0: general public. Mm -hmm. In terms of the effects of the vaccine, have they been primarily looking at decreasing the severity of the illness or inhibiting transmissibility or or both? That's a really good question, Daryl. And let me start by saying,
1: nearly all our vaccines are built around the notion of decreasing severity and of complications so we call them disease blocking rather than infection blocking Mm -hmm. this vaccine is no different what i think happened is when you heard the initial headlines the vaccine was 95 percent effective in preventing infection and disease while that was true at the time with a very susceptible virus it's not true now and with the strains and variants that we had after the initial Washington strain. So these are really disease blocking rather than infection preventing. They do prevent infection, not as well as they prevent disease. So a way to put it is this, these vaccines remain superb in preventing death and in preventing severe disease and hospitalization
0: they're mediocre.
1: That doesn't mean they don't offer benefit, but they're not as good in preventing infection.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the effects that age play, the age of the individual in terms of the effectiveness of this vaccine.
1: Well, this one uh, hits right at home, Daryl, since yeah, I've uh, <laughs> me too. Yeah. passed that 65 uh, line. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be really important because somewhere around your late 50s onward, we develop something called immunosenescence. And what it means is that our immune systems are not as strong, not as agile as they were when we were 20s, 30s, and even 40s. And as a result, we don't develop antibody responses that are as high. We don't develop immune memory responses that are as high as younger, healthy people. And the consequence is that our antibody wanes faster. In addition, you have the factor uh, in, in the US that as soon as vaccine became available, the uptake among older people was very high. The consequence of that was that they also became the first ones to be susceptible from waning over time. In other words, they had the longest interval from the time they first got vaccinated. On top of that, when you look at, and you and I both know this as internists, as we get older, we begin to accumulate medical problems, comorbidities, which impact our ability to fight off or even withstand an infection. So we develop heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, We put on extra weight and maybe have lung disease if if we were smokers, and the risk of cancer goes up uh, with age. All of those things impact our ability to fight this virus off, and it's why you see the hospitalization and death rate so much higher in older people than in younger people. That's true, by the way, for virtually every infection, including influenza.
0: Well, when the vaccines were first introduced, we were told that there's really no significant difference, at least in terms of the RNA vaccines. There's mm-hmm. no significant difference between one and the other. Now that we've had time to go back and look, are there differences in the Moderna versus Pfizer vaccine?
1: Yes, uh, there, there are. And that's a helpful question to ask and to know about. The Pfizer dose is much less than the dose of antigen that's in the Moderna vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine is maybe less reactogenic, causing less side effects, but less immunogenic than Moderna. So the higher the dose, the higher the antibody response, but the higher the side effect rate. So it's this trade-off. Is it a big trade-off? No, not really. Is it measurable scientifically? Yes. So one of the things yeah. you saw, in fact, as as we went on is regardless of which vaccine you got your first couple of doses, the concept of mix and match or what's called heterologous boosting came up. So if you got a primary series with Moderna, you were slightly better off if your booster was Pfizer. If your primary series was Pfizer, you were slightly better off with your booster being Moderna.
0: All right. When... We were initially given the vaccine. We were told it was quite safe, and um, I believe it still is. But there are some known risks of the vaccine. Why don't you review those, the ones that are true facts regarding the risks?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to, Daryl. And this takes a little bit longer. Do we have a few minutes? Sure, of course. Because I think this is a really important question. In fact, I think it's the crux of the issue for many people. So I wanna try to say this clearly, fairly, and as honest and transparent as I can. I've been a vaccinologist for almost 40 years now. This is a reactogenic vaccine. It does cause side effects. It can cause systemic side effects and local side effects. The local and most of the systemic side effects are annoying, but not dangerous. There are some side effects that are dangerous. For example, with the adenovirus vectored vaccines, seeing what's called TTP occurred, where people develop bleeding and very unusual blood clotting. That vaccine for the most part is not used much in the US. The two mRNA vaccines certainly led to episodes of myocarditis and pericarditis. But whenever we talk about side effects, let me just say that there is no human product in any area of our lives that is man-made, that is perfectly safe and perfectly efficacious. The same is true with vaccines. So what you're looking for is the balance of risk and benefit, so to speak, when you're drowning, even a halfway effective life ring is valuable. When you're not drowning, then you want the best possible life ring. Let me apply that analogy now to COVID. When the mRNA vaccines came out, we were drowning. The world was on fire with a deadly pandemic. And so anything that would reduce the risk of death and hospitalization and not be equaled by the risks of the vaccine, offered benefit. We're now getting to the point where we've got more and more, now hundreds of millions of doses of experience. And what do we know? We know that the vaccines prevent severe disease, not so good at preventing asymptomatic and infection. We know that they decrease the risk of COVID and they do so fairly substantially. What's the trade-off? As I said, in young adolescent boys, primarily, the risk of myocarditis. Almost always, that's fairly benign. People are hospitalized for 24 hours or less. If they're treated with anything, it's a non-steroidal drug, and they're released. We also have seen cases of Guillain-Barre, of neurologic complications, of what's called POTS, or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and a variety of other side effects. I think we're going to be in a situation where we need vaccines that offer better coverage and less in the way of reactogenicity. And those are being worked on, nasal spray, inhaled, oral tablet
0: vaccines. So where do we stand at the present time? Are we heading into the uh, endemic phase of covid Look in your crystal ball and tell us. Yeah,
1: That's always dangerous. The other thing I got wrong, I mentioned I got two things wrong. I predicted we'd have about 175,000 deaths in America. I was wrong by an order of magnitude. Yogi Berra said, uh, how do you put it? Predictions are hazardous, especially when they involve the future. True. <laughs> so what I think is we are absolutely not in an endemic phase yet. We are not. The XBB subvariant, for example, we might as well consider that like a new virus in terms of its immune evasion. So we are not at endemicity yet. I think we will eventually get there depending on the behavior of the virus, which feeds off human behavior. So that's one critical point. I think the second point is, as we develop vaccines that induce broader or pan-corona immunity will bring that down, that level of disease down into endemic. The problem we have is this, and you see it even with measles. MMR vaccine has been an established vaccine since the 70s, and yet we've got an outbreak of measles in the US, primarily in Ohio. You know, you look at where are polio cases occurring. Well, let's see, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and oh yes, New York City in the 21st century. And this relates to the vaccine hesitancy and rejecting behavior that we see. So we see people rejecting vaccines. And of course, there's a new susceptible cohort of about 4 million new children each year that if parents don't immunize, they become a larger and larger susceptible pool. So this really, the answer to your question really lies in, will we wear masks during the winter when we have such high levels of circulation? I'm diverting a bit, but I think the public doesn't realize that the number of deaths of, due to COVID in the US have gone up 58% in the last few weeks. Hospital admissions and ICU admissions due to COVID up 30%. So this is the time we ought to be wearing masks indoors with people who are not our family. So we've got a ways to go. If we play it right, we can move this to endemic.
0: Well, I suspect some of what you're talking about is this COVID fatigue. Yeah. People are just tired of hearing about it. It's not going to make it go away, but it uh, again, the human factor.
1: Well, you're very right, Daryl. I mean, I hear the term all the time about COVID fatigue. What they're really saying is, I'm tired of taking precautions. I understand that. You and I are in settings where we're wearing a mask all day long. I forget, I've sometimes gotten into the car with it on, forgetting that I'm wearing it. It's not that difficult to wear it, particularly if you're just wearing it into the store or just wearing it to church or to a Christmas party or something like that. I kind of think of it this way. In Minnesota, we get tired of the long winters. We get fatigued of it. But that doesn't mean I stop wearing my seatbelt or drive like it's summertime. And forget that there's ice because my life and the life of other people and my well being is at risk. The same is true with COVID. I think what has happened is that people don't want to take the precautions and they wrongly perceive that their risk is low. And that's why we've had so many deaths and so many hospitalizations. And I think what we're really going to have to face up to is a pandemic of long COVID that will stretch out perhaps the rest of many, many, many millions of people's lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think if things had been different, this disease could have been eradicated early? Or was this destined to do what it has did anyway? I don't
1: think that a disease as transmissible as this was likely to be eradicated unless the whole world wore masks and got vaccines and prohibited travel until that happened, i.e. a scenario that wasn't gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you have populations mixing with unequal immunity, getting infected in the millions of people every day and generating newer and newer variants. It is not an eradicable disease. It just isn't. And now we have animal reservoirs. The consequence of our behavior is that it is now spread to deer. It spreads to big cats, to dogs and cats, to mink, and who knows what other species at this point. It is not eradicable.
0: Well, you've discussed the harsh truths, you've reviewed the brutal realities, but your article also says there are glimmers of hope. Yeah. (laughs) What What are those?
1: Well, I think, you know, by nature, we want to be hopeful people, right? We want things to improve, that this really was a serious disease, that millions of people around the world really did die of this disease, and many tens to hundreds of millions more harmed by this virus. They've seen both the benefits and the foibles of the vaccine, but seen that on balance, the vaccine has been a worthwhile endeavor. So I I think we're seeing that people are beginning to listen more to expert advice. I think the other glimmer of hope is that we are going to see third and fourth generation vaccines. I'm worried we will not have monoclonals. There's no money available for research and no operation warp speed to get us monoclonals. And that leaves our immunocompromised patients in a very difficult position. I have shed tears over the consequences for some of my dear, dear patients that are immunocompromised and are basically stuck absolutely isolated in their homes. So I see some glimmers of of hope there. And I think that fundamentally, the human spirit is resilient. And I think eventually we will come out of this. I just rue that this had to go on for three years and it will probably go on four or five years, maybe longer depending on what the virus does. And I hope that this has caused the population to see you know what? We really are all in this together. What I do affects my family and my neighbor and my workmates and my churchmates. And I really have to think in a different way. So I think all of those together give me some glimmers of hope for the future.
0: All right. Well, Greg, I'm going to throw one last question at you before we close. We are now in the, kind of the middle of winter. People are indoors, Having parties, probably a Super Bowl party coming up, other events where people are going to be in close proximity to each other. What can our listeners do to protect themselves in this next few months? Well,
1: that's a really good question because right now, any of a variety of medical issues that you develop, depending where in the US you live, you can't get into a hospital, you can't get into an ER and be seen because they're overwhelmed with illnesses. What I would say, if you're otherwise a healthy person with a normal immune system, here is the way you can best protect yourself. I have no perfect answer, but I can tell you how to best protect yourself. Be up to date on all your vaccines. So get your COVID series, get your bivalent booster, get influenza immunized. If you're going to go to a party or something like that, go. But don't go if you're ill. And discourage other people from coming if they're ill. Wear a proper mask properly. That's a KN95 or an N95 where there's no gapping. So a proper mask properly. Virtually everybody in the U.S. now has access to at-home COVID tests. Use them. The post office just announced in the government you can get four tests a month. If you're on Medicare, you can get eight tests a month through any pharmacy. Use them. If you're developing symptoms, don't just assume, oh, it's allergies. Oh, I always get a sniffle during the winter. And the reason for that is if you have flu, we have specific antiviral treatments. If you have COVID, we have antiviral treatments. If you have RSV, we don't have any treatments right now, but we will in the future. You stay home and recover. That's what you can do. And they work. Wash your hands. You don't have to be socially distanced, but maybe a little bit of physical distance isn't a bad idea. And improve the ventilation of wherever you are. That might be simply opening windows. Hard to do in Minnesota in the winter, but for
0: other parts of the country, they can do that. Well, we've been discussing an article published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings in December of 2022, Year Three of COVID-19, Harsh Truths, Brutal Realities and Glimmers of Hope with its lead author, Dr. Greg Poland, an internist at the Mayo Clinic and Director of Vaccine Research. Greg, it's been great seeing you again. Thank you again for joining me and uh, this was really great information. Thank you, Daryl.